Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, and you are listening to your social worker with a microphone on the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. I have three guests this morning. My first guest is Chris Schella, author of Grinding It Out. He's a noted defense attorney. He's also been a prosecutor, and he's going to talk to us about the legal profession and how it has lost its luster and what young lawyers and even young law students can do to survive and how that affects us as consumers. Uh, next will be Dr. Jeff Patterson, the immediate past president of Physicians for Social Responsibility and an expert on radioactive exposure. And last, Linda Faso, founder of Green Babies, the green lifestyle expert. She's going to offer us cost-effective tips for spring greening our families. But first, Chris Shella, welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you. I appreciate that, Catherine. Great to have you on. You've done all kinds of things. You've been in practice for, what, 15, 16 years? Uh, somewhere 14, 15. It's all a blur. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, we're going to kind of put things in focus today, I hope, because, okay. you know, we've talked about the legal profession. As you say, it's been glamorized in film, television. I watch all those shows on TV. Uh, and, you know, I have a lot of uh, nieces and nephews who actually just graduated from law school, and they thought they were going to make these six-figure incomes, that they could become wealthy, that, you know, becoming a lawyer sort of insured you for life in terms of having a adequate income and being able to take care of yourself and your family, but you say that's not true, and I think most of us realize that, especially in this economy. So let's talk about that and also your new book, Grinding It Out. Well, the reality is is that... In the last few years, when the economy went bad and people started losing jobs, lawyers started losing jobs. And it was really a shock to the system because, as you said, for the longest time, everyone just thought law degree is a key to security. Uh, I remember about two months ago, I was reading an article in uh, the New York Times where it talked about that there was a law student that graduated from Columbia. Uh, I guess he had close to $200,000 in debt between law school and undergrad, and he couldn't find a job, and he was working at Foot Locker. So he has this Columbia, one of the top ten law schools, law degree, and he couldn't survive. He couldn't take care of himself and his responsibilities. So I really sat down and realized I need to maybe explain to people what they need to do to be successful. You can make six figures now, but it's just not the same way. It's not, you know, two-hour lunches, billing on the client, having martinis, and driving glamorous cars. It's grinding it out. It's doing the day-to-day, long, hard work that it takes to be successful. So, Chris, can we talk about statistics first, you know, in terms of defining the problem, how many law students or how many young lawyers 
do we grind out every year amongst all the law schools in the United States who are, like, graduating from law school and then not being able to find jobs? Well, the law schools have all these different numbers. They start out saying, oh, well, we have these many uh, law students that get jobs within six months. Some schools will say they report 92%. But the problem is they include all employment. So that young guy we're talking about at Columbia that's working at Foot Locker, if he got that job within six months, guess what? That's reported as employment with the law school statistics. Right, so we have to throw away those statistics because they're really meaningless then because it has nothing to do with getting a job as a lawyer. It has to do with just getting a job, you're saying, once you graduate from law school. At least that's the stats that the law schools use. Absolutely, and and the reality is, is that right now, some of the major law firms that have been around for over 100 years are disappearing. They're shutting doors. They're closing because there's just simply not enough business out there or they're not able to compete with the other firms that are smaller, quicker, and faster and that are willing to be creative in their fee. fees. I mean, the reality is most lawyers for the longest time have charged per hour. And you're talking you know, pretty high numbers, 500 to to $1,000 per hour for one attorney's work. And if you have three different attorneys working on a file, you know, you could be paying $2,500 an hour for that one case. And you only, you know, you don't realize how many attorneys are working on the case, but you can't. That world is gone. That world of the the two-hour lunches with the martinis is gone. You have to be competitive. You have to be lean and mean, keep your expenses down, and you can still be successful. So, Chris, what about the difference between those big cities? I mean, you're talking about $700, 800 even $1,000 an hour in some of these big city practices. You say they're closing their doors. Now, it's different in medium-sized towns and smaller towns in the United States. So do we have to kind of distinguish between or among those, those three different groups? Well, not really, because even in the small towns, like I live in Durham, North Carolina now. I'm a former Nassau County prosecutor in New York, and I practiced in Brooklyn and Manhattan. But I live in Durham now, which is a medium-sized city. And the reality is is that even here, you have people that are working for public service organizations who are losing their jobs. I mean, the reality is it's, it's, a, it's a, a crush of job loss all over the country. And the reality is is that everyone has to think or rethink how they do legal practice now. Well, when you say think or rethink legal, 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 legal <laughs> practice, I guess, um, we have to change that. Are we talking about also different kinds of of attorneys or different types of um, uh, specialties? Like, are there certain specialties that are going by the by, others that are not? I mean, like general practice, my dad was a general practitioner, a Harvard Law School graduate, but he, right. he did everything. And, you know, that was many, many years ago. And then that changed and everybody specialized. So is are there certain specialties that are going down the tubes? Are, pe- are lawyers going to have to generalize more, or how does that work? Well, Catherine, your dad was a trailblazer because he's doing whatever, what he did years ago is what everyone has to do now. You have to be whatever type of lawyer of what comes in your door. And this is especially true for new attorneys starting out in their practice. Now, I've been doing this long enough that you know I can specialize a little bit more because I have built up the clientele and the work and the ability. But especially new lawyers coming in, if criminal cases come in, you're a criminal lawyer. If personal injury comes in, you do personal injury. If real estate comes in, you do that. You make yourself competent because the reality is the problem is the specialties. Think of right now lawyers that made hundreds of thousands of dollars a year doing real estate because there were so many deals going on. Nowadays, that's dried up. I see those self-same lawyers, even in small practices that did real estate, in criminal court handling traffic tickets. 
you have to generalize now to be able to survive. You have to be able to take things out in that you wouldn't do before. If you specialize too soon, you're just simply not going to have the volume of work that you're going to need to survive. So you're saying in the beginning, when you graduate from law school, then you have to be more, uh, have it more of a generalized practice or more knowledge, a general knowledge of the law. But after a while, then you can specialize. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you can. You can. Once you build up your practice, you can, especially if you're, like I said, a small firm, a few lawyers. Yes, you can specialize then. But even then, sometimes, even in lean times, you still have to take a few cases that you may not have have planned to do. I know some major firms that are here where some of the lawyers that are partners that are with national firms still go down to the courthouse and handle traffic tickets for clients. I mean, it's just simple that, you know, you have, you can't really turn away business in this economy right now. People but you also talk do. about, which I think is interesting in your book, there are specific ways in which you can practice law also that's very different because you know, kind of cutting down on all the office supplies and all the office help and the secretaries and all those kinds of things. Talk to us about that, because if a young person is getting out of law school and wanting to set up a law practice, you can do it mean and lean. Right. Exactly. See, most lawyers, the problem we have, we get this, this is hubris, this arrogance of pride. And one thing with that is that you like to have the idea that someone else is working for you, answering your calls and leaving your messages, making your court appearances. The reality is is when you hire someone, their salary is more important than yours. Everything that you do, make sure that you pay them first, their benefits. And if you really want to be successful in this lean and mean economy, you can't do that. You simply have to you know, bite the bullet, type your own letters, go out and do the things you need to do. Um, a lot of people, for some reason, especially lawyers that work at big firms, they're used to having secretaries and receptionists and file clerks. And the reality is you put an extra three, two to three hours in a day yourself, you can do all those things yourself. And you have to do that if you want to survive right now because the reality is, say if your practice is generating $150,000 gross income and you're paying your receptionist, say, in, a, in an area like in North Carolina, 35000 which or in an area like New York, 50000 that's before your taxes. Wouldn't that fifty thousand dollars as a young lawyer be greater in your pocket than hiring someone else if your ability to be to take care of your family? So would you say, Chris, that there are some uh some students maybe who can't do this? I mean, that they're not set, you know, just in terms of who they are and not don't necessarily have the ability to practice law in this way. Well, I think that there are always some people that are sort of afraid and that's why I wrote the book, because the reality is Anyone can do this. I mean, not everyone can be a major felony trial lawyer. I'm not telling law students that if a capital murder case comes in your door, you know, after you got sworn into the bar, that you should jump on it and go to court and litigate. But if a misdemeanor comes in, you can become competent in those cases. It's not brain science. The reality is, is that there are plenty of lawyers out here who will explain to you what you need to do and help you on your way. But you have to, I mean, you, you can't take an overwhelming case when you first come in, but you can do it, and that's part of the, what my book explains to them. It's simply telling law students and lawyers that came out of big firms that have lost their jobs, you have everything you need to be successful in law practice. You just have to step out and do it and keep your focus. All right, so these are the people who already have been practicing, and, and their law firms have closed, and uh, they have to do something differently. Right. What would you say to the young the the, the, the Men and women who are graduating from college who are making the choice to go and getting accepted at law school, what would you tell them going into law school? 
the first thing I would tell them is go to the best school that gives you the best deal. The reality is, is that some of these schools you're going to come out of are going to have $50,000 a year in debt. Now, when I came out of uh, college, I went to Morehouse in Atlanta. I got accepted in half the top 15 schools, Chicago, Michigan, Penn, Texas, and Georgetown. And I believe that uh, up through the summer, I was planning to go to University of Pennsylvania. Then I sat down, and I was filling out my financial aid form. And I saw I was taking out 30000 a year in loans before, you know, for my first year of law school, for the first year. And then I looked at other documents that I had, and I saw the University of Texas, which is number 15 school, not quite as high rated as UPenn, but where they were giving me a full tuition scholarship. So one school said, take out loans. Texas said, come for free. I said, hook them horns. Yeah. <laughs> Texas was for you. Yeah, pretty much. Top 15 yeah. school. And that's the thing you got to look at. You can't just make an emotional decision saying, this is the school I have to go to. Because the reality is, is that you're going to someday after you finish law school have to pay back those bills. If you're a go-getter and you really know that you, you are going to be at a big corporate firm, you have to go for it. If that's your dream, then go for it. But understand that you may come out with a significant debt that you may not be able to pay. I actually had a, a big argument with a friend of mine, a good friend of mine who's a partner at a big firm in Atlanta yesterday. And um, I guess it wasn't more of an argument, more of a discussion, but about that same issue. And the reality is is sometimes you got to look in the mirror and say to yourself, am I the type of go-getter that I'm going to get into that big corporate firm? Or am I someone who's not quite that enthusiastic or someone who just doesn't want to work for somebody else? You have to make a real evaluation of yourself before you make a determination of what law school you go to. And the best barometer I can give you is go to the best school that gives you the best deal. Yeah, and and I think at least in the past, or you know, the, I, some of the jokes were that you know, okay, so you have uh, go to law school, you have a debt, you have you know, fifty thousand, hundred thousand dollar debt, but you know, you work for a big law firm in the city, particularly in New York City, you could make right. that back in a day, considering what you charge. That's a slight exaggeration, but uh, right. that doesn't happen anymore. That's that's it. It really doesn't. I mean, yeah. it does happen for a lucky few, but even those. I mean, the reality is, say if a class at a large firm starts out with a hundred law students coming into their firm. Three years down the road, that 100 is down to 40. Three further years down the road, that 100 is down to maybe 10 to 15. And maybe two to three people make partner eventually in another three to four years. So you're talking about people that have come in, they've worked hard, they've put all these hours in, and maybe they've repaid their debt, but now they're looking out and they're trying to figure out how they're going to support themselves because they're so used to the firm bringing in the work. And the, one of the biggest things about being a lawyer is being able to bring work in the door and generate it. So the roadmap for lawyers is very different now. We're going to take, I mean, that's obvious in what you're saying. We're going to take a a short break. We'll be back. Uh, I'm talking to Chris Scheller. He's author of Grinding It Out. Uh, He is a uh, defense attorney. He's been a prosecutor, and we're talking about the legal profession. And next, we're going to talk about the legal profession and its impact on us, the consumer, this whole new way of practicing law. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. 
you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv. Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Thanks for joining me this morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And joining me this morning is Chris Schella. He's author of Grinding It Out. He's an attorney, a defense attorney. He has been a prosecutor. Um, he, he has, well, we've been talking about the legal profession, if you are just joining us, and that's changed. It used to be a very glamorous profession. You get out of law school, you know, the, you can make as much money as you wanted to, work for big firms. You had, uh, lawyers had a lot of choices. They don't today because of the downturn in the economy. Well, it's the same way. You can't, there are no guarantees uh, for success if you become a lawyer. So you have to change your attitude and then your behavior. But then, Chris, I want to know how does, you know, we talked about that, but what's the impact on us as consumers, we're in a big city, we're in a small town, medium-sized town, we need to go to a lawyer. Now how, what do we do? Do we go to a generalist, like a family practitioner? Uh, let's say if we want to get a divorce, let's start with that. Well, I would say um, the average person, if they have a legal issue, usually it's traffic. And I'll tell you, 99% of it traffic. Can well, you don't live in New York City. <laughs> okay, then personal injury. I wouldn't cases. say that was the most common, but I'm not going to argue with you. <laughs> there are personal injury cases there. But um, what I'll tell you is personal injury, traffic, those type of things are general type of issues that most attorneys can handle. And the good thing for the consumer with this glut of attorneys is that the prices are much better. You can get someone handling those matters at a much cheaper rate. But then the concern is the flip side, which is when you have a serious matter, when you have a divorce, when you're talking about all your assets, when you have a major felony case, someone in your family is in trouble facing serious jail time, or you have a, a situation with your business where um, you could lose everything that you have based on a personal injury claim or a tort claim, you have to be very careful because there are a lot of shysters out there. I mean... I remember even when I first started my practice, it was not uncommon to see attorneys slinking along the hallways looking for uh, clients to retain or get, you know, get a quick buck. I 
think the rule of thumb you have to follow is if you know that your case is serious and it's something that risks, you know, your well-being of you and your family, you need to look for someone specific and understand if the deal's too good, <laughs> you're not getting good quality. An example I can tell you is I do a lot of capital murder cases down here in North Carolina. And I, uh, I remember that I had a uh, client charged with capital murder. And as you can tell, I mean, someone's looking at the death penalty. Someone approached his family, and they said they were willing to step in the case for $500. So That's a red flag. It should be a red flag. If yeah, that wants should to be do <laughs> That type of work for almost nothing. The same thing goes for anything else. If someone's willing to do your case so much cheaper or someone's willing to go into a bidding war to, to get your case, it's not always the best idea to take the lowest price. But if you're talking traffic, you're talking personal injury, you're talking general type of things, Almost anybody can handle that. That's not something you really need to worry about. But, Chris, are we going to have those lawyers, given what you said before? Are we going to have the lawyers who specialize in, in divorce and in capital uh, cases, in, uh, in business litigation? You, know? you will have them because the reality is, is that once you reach a point of being out here for a while and you've done this for a long time, you can specialize then. You can. I mean, I can do. I can make a great living for my family just doing criminal law. Because I have a reputation for doing that. Other lawyers have the same thing with real estate. Even with the downturn, they still get clients coming in because they have a great reputation because they've established what they do. So they'll still be the specialists, but you have to look for them. Um, one thing in my book that I talk about is I hate the referral services because what most people don't know is that there's barely any screening for those people on the referral services. You pretty much call, say you have a law degree, you have insurance, and they put you on the list. The best thing I could tell people is word of mouth, or if you get a name or a list of attorneys, Google them. See what type of cases they've handled. When you talk to an attorney, if you have a case that looks like it's going to go to trial, make sure you talk to an attorney that's actually tried a case. If an attorney tells you, oh, I can handle the case, but you know, I'm going to farm it out for somebody else for trial, that's a red flag. And you just have to be more invested in what you do. You can't just say, oh, he's an attorney, here's my money, handle the case. Just the same way now you'd look at a house, you'd want to invest, investigate the price and see if it's reasonable, you have to do the same thing with your lawyer. So are there websites that we can go to, Chris, that really specific ones? Let's say, as you say, if I don't have a capital case or a divorce case or I'm not losing my business, but I just need a, a, an attorney, a generalist, let's say, uh, just like I would need a family Well, the problem with even some of those websites is that you have people that can, anyone can post on them and say anything about an attorney, whether good or bad. The best thing I would tell you is, say, go into a Google search, put the word attorney, put the type of case you have, and then see what comes back. And there'll be a listing of attorneys, there'll be a listing of cases, of articles. Take their name and then Google that and find out more about them. And if you know someone that's ever been represented by an attorney, talk to them about it. But don't, um, I just, like I said, I really don't like those referral services because like I said, it's really not that real much of a screening. If you can pay the fee, you're on the service. And that's really not what you need as an attorney. You need someone that's going to, has competence in that field, someone that can handle something. And I mean, like I said, stay away from the bidding wars, the race to the bottom. So you, as a consumer, we really have to do our research before we hire an attorney. Absolutely. And Absolutely. we have to take responsibility for that. Absolutely. Like I said, if, you, if, you, if the deal seems too good, for, good to be true, it, it is. So you just what, simply... What's been the reaction? I just want to change uh, 
I don't know if we're changing topics, but your book, because that's what's been the reaction of the legal profession to your book, grinding it out? Any backlash to that? No, 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 no. I mean, really, my book is really mostly focused on explaining to new lawyers or lawyers leaving their practice how to run a successful practice. Um, It's not the type of book that really attacks other attorneys, but it just basically is trying to explain to new lawyers or new practitioners what they have to do to be successful. And there's really not a crystal ball out there. I mean, there are other books out there, but I remember when I came out of law school, or actually out of the DA's office and I decided to open my own practice, that um, I uh, read a book by a certain author out there, but it was a big book over three and something pages, but it never really recommended anything. It just gave you all the alternatives. Uh, My book actually makes specific recommendations on what I think they should do. And uh, I've had very good feedback from lawyers across the country, from law students, I'm getting ready to start a law school tour. I know I'll be going to a couple of schools uh, before their break. I know they're getting out in about three weeks, including the University of Texas, where I went. I'll be going, hopefully, to Duke and Wake in the fall and several other schools around the southeast. So uh, things are going well. So then your book could be, uh, I'm, uh, maybe obviously, this, this could be something that's a required reading for these young law students before they graduate? I. To me, if was someone could have sat me down and told me these things, because the reality is law school does not teach you what you really need to know to practice law. It teaches you how to think, but it doesn't teach you, you know, the relationships between your clients. Uh, an example, um, a lot of lawyers, they're so afraid, like, oh, my God, I can't let my client pay me at the courthouse. I can't do it. I can't do it. It's embarrassing. It's beneath me. My response to that is they're multi-million dollar, billion dollar corporations that get paid wherever they can. I would ask, I would challenge anyone to go to Domino's and ask them, how embarrassing is it for you to be paid <laughs> in a doorway? And the reality is, is that if you don't get payment on some of these cases, like when you do criminal or traffic, if you're really hoping and thinking your client's going to come back in after the case is over with because you don't want to take your payment at the courthouse, you're sadly mistaken. You're going to be waiting. You know, I'll sell you the Brooklyn Bridge. And it, you have to get the mentality out of I'm above everyone else and understand that you are a merchant. You're a small businessman, and you have to conduct business. I know it's tough. I know when I first started, I was almost embarrassed to ask my clients for my money. See, I think you hit on a great point, and I think this is true of doctors, too. You have to kind of change. I don't know if paradigm is the right word, but get away from this kind of elitist, gentlemanly way of practicing because law is a business as is medicine. Today it is a business, and you have to practice it as a business, as you say, or otherwise you're not going to have a business left. Exactly. And that's a different way of thinking about the professions, I think. And that's it's been evolving in, over the years, but I guess today it's even more important. I run a business, I provide you with the service, you have to pay me. Right, exactly. I mean, in my book, one thing, an example I give, what's more embarrassing, to have a client pay you in the hallway or to go home to your family and tell them that you're getting evicted because you don't have the money to pay the, uh, the rent? I mean, that's what it comes down to. You have to just... Bite the bullet and do what you have to do. I don't. I'm not saying, you know, be a sleazy lawyer picking a new client up in the hallway. But if that's simply where they have the money to pay you, give them the receipt. Do what you have to do because you're a businessman. And I, I really, like I said, multinational corporations don't care where you pay them. They just want to be paid. Mm-hmm. Exactly. One last way. question because we have only a few more minutes left. A couple minutes left. Um, you talk about politics. Uh, you suggested to, I guess, to to, to young lawyers, 
that a good way of making connections is to get into politics in some way, and that brings business to your firm. It does, because people know your name. People know your name. People around you know and see who you are. And you'd be surprised that everyday people have those same problems. Politicians get tickets. Politicians have divorces. But not only that, the people around them see that. So you actually do generate more business by being involved in that because you get yourself a higher profile. And it, yep. it's actually, you know, can generate quite a bit of uh, income. So would you suggest that immediately when when, it, uh, when you start practicing, get involved in, on some level? It doesn't have to be governor of the state, but it can be. I would. I would. Start <laughs> yeah. talking to people and let them know who you are. I mean, I wouldn't say necessarily run for office, but get to know people that are involved because you never know what that could lead to. And especially if you're a law student. I mean, as we, we've stated before, there are some people that are going to have to do this. That this is not really what they want to do. They get into politics. They talk to people in politics. Who knows? Maybe the next time they're hired as a city attorney, assistant city attorney, or they're hired as a public defender. But those jobs, you know, a lot of times it's not what you know, it's who you know. And that's how you get there. And you get your training. But, you know, it's just you have to take that risk. You have to take that chance. Great great advice, great suggestions. We've talked about a lot of things. I want to mention your book one more time, Grinding It Out. How to Create a Six-Figure Law Practice. Right. Chris Shella, it's uh, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you. It's available on Amazon.com and on BarnesandNoble.com uh, in electronic form, and it will be out in paperbacks the 31st. Look for your local bookstores or at my website, SixFigureLawPractice.com. Terrific. There's no excuse for not being able to read it, I guess. <laughs> no, pretty much. Yep. Thanks, Chris. We'll be back in a minute. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. And uh, coming up next is Linda Faso, the founder of Green Babies. Don't go away. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. 
We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. You are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. My next guest is Linda Faso. She's founder of Green Babies. She's the green lifestyle expert. She's here to talk to us about cost-effective tips for spring greening our families. Uh, she actually, Green Babies was the original organic baby brand, uh, but she was also a former Ford model, and now she's going to, she has very specific kinds of cost-effective tips for us to spring green our families. So welcome to the show. Nice to have Thanks. you on this morning, Linda. Yes, thank you. And it's a beautiful sunny day in New York, so yes. I hope it is wherever your listeners are. Yes. Um, you know, everybody has to obviously go through, change clothes, do a real spring cleaning, um, but some of the things that you can do are not only cost-effective, but will actually save money. So here's some of the suggestions. When you're flipping over your closet, for example, you might want to end up obviously donating is a very kind thing to do, but you can also have a swap meet with your neighbors. Um, I've got three kids, and as everybody that's got multiple kids knows, you buy a lot of stuff that doesn't necessarily get used, but the kids always still want to buy more stuff. So instead of always doing just a strict donation, um, sometimes we get together with friends that have kids the same age and decide that we're going to have sort of a garage sale, but where there's no price on anything. Your kids end up with either brand new stuff or practically brand new. You haven't uh, paid a cent for it, and nothing ends up in the landfill. So oh, Linda, I have to, does it only ha- have to involve the kids? As I'm listening to you, I'm thinking adults can do it too. You know, you buy a dress, say a, a, you know, a fairly expensive dress for an occasion, and you don't want to use it, you can switch with your, you know, with your girlfriend. You can Absolutely. Do a really high-end swap meet with your friends and, you know, put out a little bit of organic wine and cheese and you've got a really, really fun afternoon or evening and you're going to end up exactly, as you said, with new stuff in your closet that you really need. So we've got to go through, we've got to flip over what we've got in our closets and this is a great way to really save some cash at the same time and, and the ultimate in repurposing. But when it comes to cleaning, cleaning, and this is one of my real pet peeves, A, I hate cleaning. <laughs> and B, I hate cleaning, I, too, and I think you're going to find that most people will agree with you. People hate cleaning, and one of the reasons, though, that they hate it, at least in my case, was that you, know, you leave the bathroom after scrubbing and you have a terrible headache. This isn't just because of the nature of cleaning. A lot of times it's what we're using to clean. Most of the things that are in conventional cleaning products are really pretty toxic. So you think you're cleaning something, but in reality, you're polluting the thing that you're pulling off. So... Huge suggestion for everybody, go natural with the cleaning stuff. You might need to use a little more elbow grease, but it's really not nearly as unpleasant as when you're using things, you know, with a a fake fragrance. Synthetic fragrances have something called phthalates, and, and most of us have been hearing a little bit in the science world about phthalates, but realistically most of us don't really know what that means. A phthalate is a plasticizer, so it's the thing that happens whenever you have a new plastic that's soft, um, a new car smell or um, a vinyl curtain, but it's also binding synthetic fragrances. So all of those things mean that you're actually taking that plastic inside of you. And for most of us, that causes anything from kind of an allergenic symptom to a downright migraine. So my suggestion is when you clean, make your own. I mean, I, I'm a huge proponent of vinegar and water. I know a lot of people think that that's super smelly, but when it dries, it doesn't smell at all. Well, the other smells is also, it's just getting used to a new kind of smell. And when you say, Linda, when you say clean green and you're describing the toxic uh, uh, impact on 
you're talking about adults, but think about the impact it would have on children and babies growing bodies. So, I well, mean, the I'm impact gonna... on kids is incredibly huge, and it's actually also huge on adolescents because what's happening now is there's very little that we understand about hormones and how they interact, but we do know that something's changing in this world that we're in, and genes don't change that fast, so it means it's happening in our environments. We do know that adult male sperm count is down, maybe up to 40% from a generation ago. We do know that girls are, are becoming women earlier. So something is going on environmentally that's monkeying with our uh, hormones, and it looks like that may be what is now being called estrogenic activity. So many of these synthetic fragrances, and that that could be in your cleaning product. It could be in the swanky cologne that you're you're plunking down your money for at an expensive store. My suggestion is avoid all of those things. See if you feel better. And and to boot, <laughs> you may end up losing weight because it's estrogenic activity, which means it's literally making us put on weight. Another thing, you know, you're to, uh, this is one place where I never, ever allow them to put any kind of fragrance because I, when I go and get my car washed, they have, they want to spray that stuff, that perfume inside your car. Right. And I can't think mm-hmm. of anything worse than here you are in this car, usually in the, I'm in the north, so the windows are closed and I'm... Yeah, no, you're stuck inside of there and you're breathing it all the time. On the other hand, I mean, most people like stuff that smells good. The good news is, if you like rose, if you like citrus, if you like lavender, you're in luck. All of those things can be gotten with pure essential oils that are not incredibly expensive. So if you do want your car to smell good, um, as, as I said, I've got three kids, so there's all kinds of smells going on when you pick them up and, and take them to and fro. Um, from soccer practice, you can just drop a few drops of the essential oil on the floor of your car. It's not going to hurt it, and you won't really notice the fragrance, but it does freshen things up. You know, you can, you can put some in an oil diffuser in your house. There's, uh, you know, there's a myriad of ways that you don't have to give up everything. You certainly don't have to give up a good smelling thing, but you, you want to, little by little, divest yourself of the synthetic fragrances. Well, what about, I hear, I still hear people saying to me, because I, I do and I practice very similar kinds of things that you're suggesting, for instance, getting the, the green cleaning, and, but I will be talking to a friend or a colleague and they'll say, but it's more expensive to have to buy that stuff, so I don't get it. And I, um, I, well, I always say, well, your medical bills are going to be more expensive than, than all of it if you don't if you stop buying those toxic cleaning products. But Well, you're right, uh, but they're also right. Actually, some of the things are not more expensive, and, you know, supply and demand happens, so some of the things, the cost goes down. But sometimes, I mean, buying organic, there's just no question that costs more I, because it 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 is a much smaller um, section of the grocery store, the farmers that grow it are much smaller, so they don't have the economies of scale. They're not getting the same amount of uh, support, really, from the federal government in terms of subsidies, so it costs more. So here's my suggestion on that. Take what you eat the most of in terms of organic and choose to buy, uh, I'm sorry, in, in terms of fruits and vegetables, and choose to buy that organically. So if your kids love, 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 love apples, you know, you really want to choose those organically. And you're absolutely right. Does it cost more? Maybe a dollar more by 10 apples. It's not twice as expensive. So you divide that up. It's, it's a dime more per apple. Is that worth it? I mean, would you buy an apple in a store, take it home, spray it with Raid, wash it off, and eat it? Of course you wouldn't. But when we're not buying organic, 
especially with fresh fruits and vegetables. That's basically what we're doing. So we need to retrain ourselves little by little, and not, not so much from a fear factor of, you know, what could happen if I eat too much of it, but just trying to understand that nature really has always been right. That's how we've all ended up here. And thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of years of development to bring us a living soil that gives forth with very little work the way that we all eat and live and thrive is something that's worth preserving for future generations. And we've, we've really gotten away from that. So I'm so non-hippy-dippy, and I've had this conversation with people, especially parents that are on a tight budget, for many, many years. So the best thing to do is think of it as a reward for yourself and your family. Think of it as a special treat. And then every time you go to the grocery store, try and have one more special treat that's in that direction until you become used to the fact, as you said, that as Americans, we spend less per capita on our food than any other developed nation in the world, but we spend more on our medical care than any other developed nation in the world. Those two things are intimately connected. We are not spending enough money on our food, and we're paying for it with obesity, diabetes, cancer, all of these things that really basically... But I don't think, I mean, you and I are making that connection, and I think in terms of, and I would say in terms of marketing uh, uh, green products, that argument doesn't, I don't hear that argument too much. I don't hear, you know, we do, we, we separate the two. I think in, as Americans in our head, we talk about, you know, our health care and all the monies that we're paying for the cancer and all the other stuff that, that is a result, I think, of our lifestyle. Much of it is anyway, not all of it. Um, but we don't make the connection between that and not using green products, not taking our, care of ourselves in that way. So how do you, I mean, I think that, well, obviously, we have to, you know, I have to have a show and have people like you on, but I think that has to be, I think that that has to get out there in a very different way in terms of how we market the green product. It is getting out there. This is why, you know, the growth of organic. I mean, I'm just launching a completely natural, free of all kinds of petroleum synthetic baby body care line under the Green Babies label, and uh, that just could never have happened 20 years ago. People didn't understand anything about that. But natural and organic personal care is poised to grow 20% this year. There's no other cosmetic that's anywhere near that in terms of growth. So people are getting it. It's just about starting to think a little bit more for ourselves. And it's not that anybody that doesn't get it is stupid. It's that we've been deeply conditioned by companies that have huge, huge profits at stake not bad people, people who, you know, all of us may own stock in, that, that the bottom line was about how much they could sell and how much profit there was. But the real bottom line is about quality of life, the quality of each of our lives, is about a child who doesn't lose three or four points of IQ because they're, they're, they're putting X on before they take a test. This sounds crazy, but other countries are acknowledging this, that there's a connection between what happens in our brain, which is a big chemical soup anyway, and what we breathe in. I mean, you don't give a kid a joint before they take a test and then ask them why they didn't do well. Why are we letting them put these things all over their bodies that get absorbed into the bloodstream that we know very little about? But in some cases, we absolutely know create estrogenic activity. Why are we doing this? Because we haven't stopped to think about it. And because for many years we were told we smell so bad, we better use that. We look so bad, we better have our fat sucked out of us. Instead of the fact that we're pretty perfect the way that we are, nature made us that way, or God, or whatever you think. We ended up in a place when we were born where things were kind of terrific. And if we stop poisoning ourselves and our land and our food and our water and other people who grow our food, 
everything's probably going to turn out to be okay. I want to just interrupt for a minute because we only have a couple minutes left, and I think one of the things that you do well or you, when you make your suggestions are that you aren't, you, you tell it's the way in which we can make the change, and that I think is helpful for people to know. You don't have to do everything all at once because, yeah, we have been programmed for many, many years, and to change attitudes, it, 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 it takes a few years or it takes time, even just as an individual. So, you know, you say when you buy an organic household item, buy, you say commit to buying one organic household item regularly, just one. Start out with one. You don't have Absolutely. to do everything, whatever and it just, is. When you run out, you don't even have to go under the kitchen sink and throw stuff out now. When you run out of one, look at what you, the other options are that are more natural and consider trying it. If it doesn't feel like it makes sense to you or if it feels like it costs triple, don't try it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, try the thing that doesn't cost triple. Try the thing that starts to make sense to you. And I think sometimes we get into this all-or-nothing mentality. Okay, I have to go through my house and green everything, and I have to Absolutely. totally change everything. Well, we know that doesn't work. It's sort of like going on an all-or-nothing diet. Yeah, starving, stuffing and starving yourself, it doesn't work. No, it's a very American thing. Everybody should run. No one should run. Everyone should drink milk. No one should drink milk. You know, in, in order for green to become part of our, our lives, for it to literally be sustainable, not just sustainable for the planet, but sustainable in our lives, it has to make sense. And it only makes sense if it makes sense on an individual basis. But as you start to use something, as you and I were talking about, that, that doesn't have a synthetic fragrance and suddenly the thing that smells like a flower really came from a flower, that actually creates different synapses in our brain. We're not lying to ourselves. And somewhere we start to gain a little bit more physical confidence in that choice and it becomes easier and easier and easier to integrate things that are more natural. And, and I think it truly improves the quality of our life. And it certainly improves the quality of our water because there's just no filter taking these things out of the water system. Well, great suggestions, cost-effective, great uh, besides, and, and very practical. So, um, Linda, where can we go? What's your website? Um, I know you're doing a lot of different kinds of things in this area. So. Thanks. Yeah, well, I just started a blog on my website, which is greenbabies.com. Um, and, you know, we really are interested, uh, we're really on a mission to help people know what their options are out there. I won't say to change people because, as I said, I think it's, it's really up to everybody themselves what works for them. There's no one right way. Um, but we're, we keep our nose, um, we really, we keep our ear to the ground on what's happening out there in the science world as well. So a lot of these things that I felt for a long time and, you know, sort of made sense for me with my own kids, now science is substantiating that because of the way that we can map the brain. So, well, thank uh, you for. Oh, we have to say goodbye because. All right. Well, it was great talking break. with you. Thanks for having me, and 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 I'm glad that that you're you're not taking up synthetic fragrance either. <laughs> okay, Linda Fassa, right. founder of Green Babies, and the, coming up next is Dr. Jeff Patterson. Dr. Patterson is the immediate past president of Physicians for Social Responsibility and an expert on radioactive exposure. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. We'll be back in a minute. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? 
Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on Voice America Variety and World Talk Radio. Uh, coming up now is Dr. Jeff Patterson, the immediate past president of Physicians for Social Responsibility, and he's an expert on radioactive exposure. He's professor in the he is a professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Public Health at the University of Wisconsin. So his uh, being on the show today obviously is very timely. Welcome to the show, Dr. Patterson. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Okay, as I understand it, you you went to Chernobyl, Chernobyl in 1986 with a delegation of physicians. You have extensive background in the risks and medical consequences. Of nuclear energy. Oh, so my first question, and I know this is on many people's minds, how does the radiation leaks at the Fukushima nuclear plant in Japan compare to Chernobyl? Because that's my point of reference. Certainly. Well, there are two different types of accidents. Uh, Chernobyl was a fire, and so the radiation was lofted much higher into the atmosphere by the heat from the fire. And so it literally blew all over Europe, uh, Russia, and then uh, around the world. Uh, this uh, uh, accident is explosions of uh, hydrogen gas and steam releases, and so the uh, radiation hasn't gone as high into the atmosphere, and so I think less of it is going around the world. Um, however, it is spreading uh, around the world. Looking at the maps, we've seen traces of it in many states in this country, uh, which are probably not of concern uh, for human health at this point in time. I think the immediate concern is the health of the people in the immediate areas of the plants, uh, and there's a lot of controversy about how far out that is. Um, so, uh, And I think the bigger picture is that this shows us that none of us are immune to an accident like this, that the, the effects uh, both immediately and in the long term uh, are indeed worldwide. Doctor, but Dr. Patterson, you, I want to just go back to what you said. You said, well, now there are, I don't know, what, 13 or 15 states who have, who have acknowledged, I guess, that uh, they've detected <clears throat> low levels of radiation. But you say in, in the right now, in the immediate right now, uh, it's not a problem. So at what point do we know that it will be a problem? How do, you know, I mean, at what point does it become a problem, the, the radiation that, that we are um, getting as a result of the accident in Japan? It's a very good question, and uh, there are several issues with this. One is radiation does not spread evenly, and so uh, it may be high in one area and low in another area. So even though we monitor it, uh, it may not give us a, a terrific idea of the exact doses that uh, are in an area. Um, 
the second is we're concerned about iodine, uh, immediately radioactive iodine, which has a, a half-life of eight days. We take that times 10, so it's 80 days that we have to be concerned about the iodine. And it gets into the body and into children's thyroid glands and irradiates the thyroid gland, causing cancer down the road, as we've seen in over 6,000 children from Chernobyl. Uh, but there, we, we feel that we can tolerate a certain dose of this before we become concerned about it and give people iodine pills to block the uh, thyroid gland. The longer-term problem is the cesium and other products that come out, which will be in the environment for many, many years to come, and uh, indeed will continue to be a problem uh, for the foreseeable future. So how can we protect ourselves, or can we? I think the biggest thing is to... Uh, uh, monitor what's happening and uh, to recognize uh, if doses do become uh, high enough to be a problem and then taking iodine pills. And secondly, I think it's uh, working actively to uh, prevent these types of things from happening again, which would be either releases from power plants like this, and the only way to prevent that is to do away with nuclear power as a means of generating electricity or preventing uh, the use of nuclear weapons. And the only way to do that is to do away with nuclear weapons. So I think people need to become very active on both fronts uh, so that we uh, eliminate both things. Why don't we learn, uh, as a social worker, I'm going to take it more from a psych, uh, take a little bit of a psychological approach here, Dr. Patterson. You know, we had the catastrophic events at Chernobyl. We also had Three Mile Island, but, uh, but we don't seem to learn from that, or do we? I mean, we have, are, are we learning? Are we doing things to, as you said, create preventative measures so we can uh, use other sources of energy other than nuclear energy, or do we just forget about it after six months? You know, we tend to just forget and go about our lives, and we don't do anything about it. And uh, radiation is uh, very amenable to that sort of thing because you can't see it, smell it, feel it, or taste it, and so you don't know what's happening with it uh, 30, 40, 50 years down the road. Uh, and so it's easy to sweep under the rug, and certainly the history of the nuclear industry has been one of minimization and cover-up, and we're seeing that again now, uh, which is a real problem because the public doesn't trust uh, the government or nuclear industry when they tell them things about this now. Um, so uh, it, it is easy to forget about, uh, again, because we uh, don't uh, see the effects, the cancers that occur. Um, you know, there are a lot of cancers that occur anyway, and so it's difficult to pull out the cancers that may occur from this. Um, and uh, uh, But I think we do need to learn that the, the, the track record of the nuclear industry is not good. They've had three major accidents, many other close calls, and a fourth accident in Kishtam, which involved nuclear, uh, the nuclear weapons industry. Uh, and so the question is, how many of these things can the world tolerate uh, as we spread pollution uh, that literally lasts forever around the world before we learn the lesson that we can't do this? Well, one question is, I, I had read that the, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the ocean water surrounding the plant in Japan has three times, 3,000 times the normal level of radiation. Now, how is that going to I mean, what are the ramifications of that? Yes. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it, it shows again how little we know about this, and that's a measurement of iodine, and so that isn't even measuring the cesium, and now, of course, plutonium has been reported to come out of the plant, plutonium with a half-life of uh, uh, 24,000 years. Um, 
So, uh, and they're saying it's okay, it's going to just dilute in the, the big ocean out there, but it moves up the food chain. The uh, algae concentrate it, uh, coral may concentrate it, uh, fish, uh, little fish eat those, uh, big fish eat the little fish, and it concentrates up the food chain into the uh, larger fish, which we catch and eat, and, of course, we get the highest dose. And, you know, they're saying it's safe as long as you don't fish within a 20-kilometer radius of the plant, but... Uh, uh, the fish don't know that, and uh, so they're kind of swimming in and out of that area. Uh, and so, uh, again, there's no guarantee that you're not going to uh, be profoundly affected. Uh, the, at least the seafood uh, sea chain is not going to be profoundly affected. And this is so a, a major we, problem. Doctor, we have a few, just a couple minutes before we, um, we say goodbye. Yes. So if we had a bullet, like three things for us as consumers or um what should we do? But you said keep abreast of what's happening. We can do that. We can go online. It's, sometimes it's hard to know who to believe. Yes. Maybe you could give us a couple websites that we could go to. And then maybe specifically within our own families or just our own environment, how can we protect ourselves from this radiation that we've already been exposed to and that we're going to continue to be exposed to as a result of this accident? Well, again, I think we need to, to rest a bit easy in this country about it, that I don't think it's going to be a, a large amount of radiation in this country, at least at this time, that we can tell. Uh, so I don't think we need to be terribly anxious about it. Uh, and I think uh, staying abreast of the reports about the radiation spread is uh, probably the most important thing. And then uh, monitoring one's own personal radiation doses from uh, the medical profession. This is probably the highest source of radiation individually from x-rays and cat scans and whatnot, and people uh, tend to get a lot of these, some of them done unnecessarily. So talking with your doctor carefully about is this really a necessary procedure is probably a, a good idea as well. And then becoming active uh, with organizations like uh, Greenpeace, Physicians for Social Responsibility. Our website, psr.org, will uh, have uh, updated information on the radiation. The IAEA, uh, which is the International Atomic Energy Association, has an excellent website that is updating uh, daily on the, uh, the radiation in Japan as well. All right, well, so those are lots of resources that we have available to us. Uh, one last question. I travel a lot, and, you know, now you have to go through these uh, X-ray machines. Uh, I was traveling with a companion. He refused to do it, and he got a pat down. They didn't ask me to do it. What do you suggest in terms of that? Well, uh, there are two views of this. One is uh, that it's a very, very tiny amount of radiation, and so it's inconsequential. Uh, and two is uh, there is no safe dose of radiation, and so every additional dose that you get uh, increases your risk of cancer. And uh, so I think some of it depends on your age. Uh, the younger you are getting these doses, uh, the longer you have to have trauma and damage from it. Uh, and... Um, so uh, I think the answer is not in. I I personally don't go through those. Uh, I've had. And I'm going to end on that one because we got 30 seconds. Very good. You Very personally good. don't go through it. That's enough for me. Anyway, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Yes, um, you bet. We obviously learned a lot from you, Dr. Jeffrey Patterson. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and I uh, hope you had a great morning. Have a good week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.